0: And now hear God's holy word from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, continuing our study in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I deliver them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor is man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as the woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering but if anyone seems to be contentious we have no such custom nor do the churches of god thus far the reading of god's word let's give thanks together father in heaven we thank you for your word and we ask you that your holy spirit would guide us into its study today particularly when we come to difficult things things that confuse us things that uh, we we struggle through and don't understand we need an extra measure of your grace and your spirit so i pray that you would provide that for us today Help me to be articulate and clear in the teaching of your word. And Father, we pray that you would deliver us from all error. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When you get an invitation to an event of any importance, one of the first questions you ask is, what's the dress code? What what, what have we got to wear to this thing? What what are they expecting? Read the invitation. What does the invitation say? Is it formal? Is it semi-formal? Is it informal? Business? Casual? Business casual? Smart casual? Contemporary business casual? Country club casual? Resort casual? Sporty casual? Is it white tie? Is it black tie? Day formal or evening formal? Basically, what I'm asking is, what is the most comfortable thing I can get away with wearing? Let me know where that bar is. Now, there used to be very clear definitions of dress codes that everyone pretty much knew and accepted. And there were even charts in old etiquette books about whether you were expected to wear a hat or, or gloves, or what kind of gloves you were supposed to wear to certain kinds of events. And folks generally followed these rules, at least the kinds of people who got invited to the things that had dress codes. Of course, most people throughout human history have uh, not owned more than one or two things to wear, more than one or two changes of clothing at a time. So, So these kinds of designations haven't always mattered to everyone. But for the kinds of people who are dressed with more than two things in their closet, the question of what to wear to an event has mattered. Now, for men today, usually the question comes down to, okay, just tell, do I have to wear a tie? That's all I need to know. Do I have to wear a tie? If you could just put that on the invitation from now on. You know, women basically know how to dress, I think. Uh, ordinarily, women know how to dress and look good. But you have to spell it out for men and just put it on there. Do we need to wear a tie? And that's all. that's all we need to know. Uh, it's easy to notice that Clothing customs and clothing standards have radically changed over the past several decades but they've always been changing We look back to um, pictures from the 1940s of men in jackets and hats sitting at baseball games or people dressing up to go on a go on an airplane and we think wow that was really it was really nice it was really a classy time maybe that was the ideal maybe a real Christian culture all the men would be wearing these uh, you know fedoras and, and and wearing jackets maybe that was it but I mean, if you think about that for two minutes, Moses didn't wear a tie, not that I know of. Jesus didn't wear wingtips. Uh, look, look at uh, paintings of the Reformers or of the Puritans, and you see that proper respectable male attire in 1740 looked radically different from proper male attire in 1940. So these things change, and, and clothing styles change, and hairstyles are always changing. It's easy to guess the year in old family photos by looking at the hairstyles. Again, Looking at uh, photos and paintings over the last several hundred years, you see men's and women's hair uh, presented in all kinds of styles and and even lengths. These things tend to be fluid. They're always changing, and even the most conservative of us don't dress like the most conservative people a hundred years ago. Clothing and hair continue to change, but there are some things that haven't changed. When it comes to decisions about how we present ourselves, how we we move through the world, how we adorn ourselves and clothe ourselves, the Bible gives us some principles to build off of. Primarily, clothing, its purpose, foundationally, the, the function of clothing is to cover our nakedness. The first clothing in the Bible comes when Adam and Eve need to cover their bodies and God puts hides on them. He puts animal skins on them to cover their nakedness. And so throughout the scriptures, to expose someone's nakedness or or even to deliberately dress in such a way that doesn't cover yourself is shameful and immodest. We don't have time to do a word study or a long uh, in-depth look at this today, but maybe on your own you should look at uh, places where uh, modesty and nakedness appear and, and in what context. Um, so uh, clothing is a is a covering. It, it doesn't matter what the prevailing fashion is today. It doesn't matter what the the magazines have on their covers. If your clothing doesn't deliberately cover your body, if your clothing reveals or exposes your body, you're not obeying the lord. I mean you're not you're not pleasing to god if you're dressing in a way that's suggestive or inviting sexual attention that's not pleasing to god. 2 Timothy 2 is addressed to women and it says dress in modest apparel with propriety and moderation and i can hear maybe three or four women saying why is why is it always picking on women the way they dress well i could take you to places in the bible and say why is it always picking on men about drunkenness and laziness and brawling if we if we admit that there are differences between men and women we will also admit that there are differences in the way that we sin and men are probably more likely to brawl than women and so we i can take you to places in the bible where we men shouldn't brawl and and uh, women should dress with propriety and moderation um, so, so clothing is a covering. It's at least that. It has to do at least that. It has to cover. It's also functional. There are different garments in the Bible for different occasions. There's uh, different garments for different offices. The soldier has his armor. The priest has his kind of own ceremonial uniform and armor. All of Israel had specific features to their garments. The kind of fabric, the, the, the blue tassels on the wings of the garment were all prescribed by God, which kind of answers the question, does God care what you wear? Well, did God care what Israel wore? Well, he did. And, and so uh, there, there were these um, functions built into the garments uh, that God gave his people. On top of that, so clothing is a covering. Clothing serves various functions, uh, with your calling and with your office and with your duties and with your with uh, your your job but, but clothing is also a kind of glory. We wear throughout the day when we when we get dressed in the morning, we put the whole creation on us we put on uh, vegetable and animal and mineral uh, pieces of creation. We wear plant fibers like cotton and linen. We wear animals, leather and fur. We wear metals and gems that that shine and reflect light and jewelry and belt buckles and and, uh, watch bands and and things. So so we represent all of creation and we show forth the glory of all creation in our clothing. And so clothing is also a representation of man's place in the cosmos. We, We are clothed with dominion. We are clothed with all of creation as well. So it's a glory. And then lastly, clothing and hair differentiates and identifies male and female. There's always been an explicitly male way to dress. And there's always been an explicitly female way to dress. And it's present in every culture around the world. Whether they've been influenced by the church or not, men and women dress Differently. I mean, even look at the signs on bathroom doors, and you can see that there's a fundamental difference in the way that men and women dress, except it just struck me that uh, it must be really confusing in Scotland. I don't know if that matters at all. Um, but uh, basically, for the whole rest of the world, every culture uh, can tell you know, the difference between men and, and women by how they dress. And, and the male is forbidden to dress like a female, and the female like a male. In God's law, and so how we how we build uh, off these principles um, determines how we dress. And notice that none of these concerns that I just listed, none of them begins with individual expression or comfort. Now, individual expression is is a thing. It's okay if you like blue, you wear blue. If you like red, you wear red. There's nothing wrong with that, and, and certainly we are all uh, interested in comfort, but that's not where we start. If pure comfort were the only guiding principle in how we dress and how we present ourselves to the world, we would walk around in sweatpants all the time, and that, or we'd walk, we, you know, we dress like toddlers, and people do, right? The people who don't care about anything else, they, they do that. But why do we not do that? Why don't we do that? It's because we understand at some level we dress for other people and not simply for ourselves. And when you get dressed, the kind of clothes you wear and the general appearance you project is not only for yourself, you dress for other people. Not only for your own comfort, but to respect and honor others. Now we're tempted to say that none of this matters. We think, well, if what I wear offends you, or if what I wear draws you to lust, then that's your problem. I wear what I want to wear, I wear what makes me happy. But still, even built into that, even the most outwardly rebellious person um, will will still realize that what they dress uh, in and and how they present themselves, they know that that affects other people. That's why they do what they do. It's because of the response that it gets. They pretend to be only dressing for themselves, but they're still dressing to stir up a response from other people. everyone recognizes that there is a time and a place for everything. There are still codes that we live by and manners of dress that we conform to. We don't wear bathing suits to a funeral. We don't wear tuxedos to a, to a picnic. We, we comb our hair before we leave the house. We uh, uh, take off our hat for the national anthem, things like that. In every one of these choices, we are acknowledging the existence and the response of other people to our appearance and the things that we put on or take off. Now, all of this is germane to what we're studying in 1 Corinthians because how our behavior affects other people has been the subject of Paul's writing for the last three chapters that we've studied so far. You, you don't belong to yourself, he says. You were bought with a price. So when it comes to, in this issue of, of eating meat offered to idols, what you eat and where you eat it affects other people. You don't don't simply ask, how does this affect me? How does this make me comfortable? But how does this affect the church? Does this bring honor or dishonor to the name of the Lord Jesus? Uh, How does this affect the weaker brother? How does this affect the unconverted? All of these things, are, if they're built into how we eat and where we eat, then they're also built into how we dress and and what what we wear. So for the next four chapters, he addresses the way that the Christians in Corinth are not considering each other and in many ways abusing each other in the Lord's Supper, and he corrects all of the irregularities and abuses of spiritual gifts. The ways that they're not loving each other in the way that they're living. So he begins this new section with this subject of head coverings, hair length, and how these things are relevant to the exercise of spiritual gifts and our roles as as men and women. I want to give a quick footnote. This is maybe one of the top five toughest passages in scripture to preach. And and the, the temptation is just kind of skim through it and just say, well... I don't know what to do with this. And, you know, we keep going, but we're not going to do that. You know me, we're, we're going to plow right through no matter what. And so, uh, so uh, but, but I, I pray and, and have been praying all week that God, God gives us clarity and what, uh, what God is asking for and what the scriptures require of us here. So again, we we might come to this passage and say, well, fashions and hairstyles indeed are always changing. So whatever instruction is here is is only relevant to the first century. We don't have to pay close attention. We can just keep going. But again, we just spent the last three Sundays talking about meat offered to idols. And there was a ton of instruction in there that was relevant for us, even though we don't have that very same institution today. So again, uh, there's a great deal here to be learned that we can apply to our own context. And we're going to run through it verse by verse and and seek to understand the argument that he's laying out here. So verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I deliver them to you. He begins by appealing to the Christ-ordained order that is being observed by all the churches. He says, hold to these traditions that I've delivered to you. He's going to come back to this at the very end of the passage. And he says, what I'm asking of you is universally accepted throughout the churches. So there's no arguing about it. We, we get our direction about what to do from outside of ourselves. We, we don't make up our own rules. We are not our own authority. We don't take something that the church has said is good and we come and we twist it. We put our fingerprints all over it and says, well, now it's really meaningful because I got to twist this around to suit my comfort. No, he says, what I'm gonna tell you, this is accepted by all the churches. Verse three, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every, woman, uh, the, the, the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. He's going to use the word head a lot through this passage. Sometimes metaphorically, sometimes the head, as in authority or source, sometimes head he uses literally, like your, your noggin, the thing on your neck, um, metaphorically and, and literally. And sometimes he uses both in the very same sentence as we're about to see. And so we have to, we have to pay close attention and keep track. So here he uses it in a metaphorical sense. Everyone is under authority. Everyone has a head. Men have a head, who is Christ. Women have a head, who is their husband. And even Jesus has a head, who is God the Father. Now, it always bears repeating that when we talk about headship, particularly within marriage, we're not talking about value, we're not talking about intelligence, we're not talking about uh, worth as a human. By saying the head of woman is man, Paul is not teaching that man is smarter than woman or more pleasing to God or of higher value. We're not talking about quality or worth. We are talking about roles. And the key is that Paul adds to this, the head of Christ is God. The fact that the, the son submits to the father does not mean that Jesus is inferior to the father. He's not of less value than the father, but that the son happily and joyfully serves in this role that he uh, is given, that, that he is the glory of the father. Jesus uh, has the father as, as his head and he is the shining forth of the father's glory. So when we want to twist this, and both men and women uh, want to, we're tempted to twist this, and we're, we want to twist this in the direction of um, uh, that. That we, we want to leap to worth or intelligence, but when it comes to roles, the Bible never says that. To, to, to say that a wife is her husband's helper is not degrading. That's not an insult. We just sang in Psalm 30 this morning, we sang, God is our helper. In Psalm 54, we see again, God is our helper. Is it degrading or demeaning for God to be our helper? No, it's not. In fact, Uh, if you help me, that doesn't mean you're inferior to me, right? You help me out of strength and knowledge that you have. You have something I need. You have something I lack. You fill up some shortfall in me. So so it's not, we're not talking about worth, (laughs) Or value. When you think of a head, also, it's helpful to think not only of the thing that you have on your shoulders and not only like a a head of state or a a head of an organization, but also to think of the head of a river, uh, the source, the fountain, the beginning point from which water flows out and refreshes the land. That's the sort of head that the Father is to Jesus. That is the sort of head the man is to be to his woman, the initiator, the nourisher, the source of provision and strength and comfort. Authority? Yes. Absolutely. But see, what kind of authority are we talking about? The kind of authority that your head has over your body. Your head cannot live apart from your body. Your head uh, informs and directs and, and, uh, and, and guides the, the body, but also is dependent upon the body, which, which he's going to say. Verse 4, Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Now see here, head is used in two different ways in this sentence. Every man praying with his head covered dishonors his head. So we're we're using the head in two senses there. And we get the whole context for this bit of instruction in this verse here. What he's going to say about having your head covered or uncovered applies in this context. He's talking about prophesying or praying. Now, prophesying refers to the special spiritual gift of prophecy, which um, doesn't only mean telling the future. I think we always think of telling the future. We think of prophecy, but but prophecy is also another word for preaching, spirit-inspired speech. So so, uh, having your head covered or uncovered in this context, we're talking about prophesying. We're also talking about praying, now, what kind of praying are we talking about? Praying only comes up one other time in this epistle, and it's in reference to praying in tongues in chapter 14. So several scholars have brought this out, and, I, and I'm in agreement, that the kind of praying that Paul is referring to is probably praying in tongues. And that, that uh, prophesying and this kind of praying... The context here of whether you do this with your head covered or uncovered, the context is the exercise of spiritual gifts, the exercise of those miraculous spiritual gifts that existed in the early church. So Paul doesn't say anything about praying with your head covered or uncovered in psalm singing or listening to the reading of the word or eating at the Lord's table. In fact, there's nothing here about corporate worship at all when it comes to having your head covered or uncovered. So even if we were to be convinced and what we're about to read, that that this passage requires women to wear some kind of headgear. The most that we could require it for is if they are somehow leading in prayer or prophesying. And and again, that's even assuming that he's talking about normal prayer and not praying in tongues. So again, the context, it seems to me, because of what he's about to get into through the rest of this book, is going to be the exercise of spiritual gifts. So, what has he just said in verse 4? He says, If a man prays with his head covered, he dishonors his head, who is Jesus. Why? How does that work? If he prays with his head covered, how is, a dis- how is that a dishonor to Jesus? We're well, going to hang on to that. We're going to get to that. But the fact is, it's possible to dishonor or shame the Lord by what you leave on or uh, take off. Verse 5. Um, so, every woman every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. There's a whole world of speculation about what might have prompted the Corinthians to ask this question and, and, and why he answers in this way. Some suppose that the question of hair length and head covering was crucial to the church, because in ancient Corinth the only me- women the only women who went around uh, in in public without some kind of veil or some kind of head covering the only women who went around without a veil were were prostitutes. They would literally let their hair down. We talk about that. Hey, let's get together and let her hair down. Let's have fun. Well, they literally let their hair down in a, in a suggestive or uh, sexually explicit way in the, in, in the public square and, of course, in their wild temple rituals, which we've talked about as well. So, so it was considered terribly immodest, even by uh, respectable pagans. It was incredibly immodest for women to not have some kind of covering, some kind of hair wrap on their head in public. So it wasn't a hat. It wasn't like an Easter bonnet. It wasn't, you know, like a little tea cozy, doily, whatever those things are. It was more, it would have been more like a shawl or a wrap. So even if we were, just step back for just a minute, even if, if we're trying to figure out what is our instruction today? What does God require of us today? Even if um, even if we were to try to enforce this or follow this today, a, a, a hat or a doily isn't what Paul is talking about. He's talking about a piece of clothing that nobody in the West wears anymore. And we don't get a description of it. It seems that if God wanted uh, women throughout uh, all, all eternity to have this in these specific contexts, that we get some description of it. But Paul doesn't give us a description. It's because every woman in Corinth knew what it was. They knew what he's talking about. We don't get a description. But we do get descriptions of plenty of garments in the Bible. We know what those are. And so it's, it's not outside of the Bible's uh, realm of, of information to give us descriptions of garments. But we don't. We don't have a description here. At the time, everybody knew what he was talking about. And all the women knew because every woman at the time wore these these coverings. But here are women, and, and this is the context of the question, it seems. There are women in the church who have heard Paul teach. There's no Jew or Greek. There's no slave or free. There's no male or female. And now we're all valued in, in the renewed people of God. But remember how he's already addressed some people in the church who thought well, being really spiritual means not marrying. Being real, really spiritual means no, no sexual in- intimacy. That's what it means to be really spiritual. So therefore, it must have been that women assumed that if they were to exercise spiritual gifts, that they ought to do it just like the men do it, and remove the head covering that they wore all the time, and even let down their hair to show, hey, we're free from the normal social conventions by which men and women are distinguished, because there is no Jew or Greek, male or female, slave or free. So so we're, we're unbound. Now... I know that it's, it, it can be a stretch for us to try to understand why this was important, but try to put yourself in this situation and think how new converts and unbelievers would view these Christian communities and these Christian families if they discovered that women were literally letting their hair down in, in these contexts. They, they would put the church in a category of just another crazy cult, just identified with that, that stuff they do with idol worship. Well, this practice of women praying and prophesying without their heads covered was unsettling. It was off-putting. It was offensive. It was embarrassing. And Paul says it was shameful. Shameful. He says, ladies, how would you like to have your head shaved? Of course, that would be tragic. No woman who delights in being a woman who cares about modesty, who cares about femininity, uh, femininity wants a, a, uh, her head Shave Now, of course, with uh, cancer treatments and other things that, that happen, you can't, you can't help it. Um, but nobody, nobody, wants, nobody wants that. Paul's going to say later, a woman's hair is her glory. A woman's hair is, is radiant. It's a shining forth. So cutting off her hair is cutting off her glory. If you think that would be embarrassing, that's essentially what you're doing by prophesying with, with a bare head. And here's why. He explains it. Verse 7. For a man, indeed, ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. And he's referencing their creation. Woman was taken out of the side of man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. So, so man was created by God. Man is the shining forth and the glory of the triune God. Women came from man's side. And so she is the shining forth. She is the glory of man. So a man's glory is not himself. A man's glory is not his own hair. His glory is his woman. A man who glorifies in himself, a man who glorifies in his hair, who primps and preens, it's, it's unnatural. It's kind of weird. It's, it's the rejection of woman, even. Woman is the glory of man. He isn't his own glory. Man was created first, but man was inglorious. He's simple and functional. Then God gives him woman and she's glorious. She's beautiful and she completes him. Man isn't his own glory. Remember Absalom who did just that, right? He had this, he was known for this great mane of hair that he was always, you know, doing up and putting things in and doing all this stuff. And, um, and then it was, his, it was his downfall because uh, he was uh, behaving out of step, not only with, he rejected his head, his father, David, but also Yahweh his head and he was his own he tried to be his own glory verse 10 uh, for this reason the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels now in in some way the authority on a woman's head is signified by her veil or her shawl or this this wrap this covering and it represents her male head her husband father, her elders. Uh, To understand any of this, we have to understand the importance of various kinds of coverings in the Bible. Think of whenever that word comes up, veils and coverings. Where do you you hear that language? Well, the tabernacle had a number of coverings or veils between God and man. There was a cover on the Ark of the Covenant that was called the, the mercy seat. There was a curtain closing off the Holy of Holies. There was an enclosure entering the holy place. The whole tabernacle had layers and layers of coverings. The veils over this structure were like the firmament. They were like the covering over the earth that separates the earth from the heavens. These coverings in these various places are necessary to protect or shield or guard sinful man from getting too close to a holy God. The only access that you have to a holy God is through a head, through a priest who was covered and 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 he went with a sacrifice. He went with blood. So all of these coverings and all of these various places and all of these various contexts in worship all symbolized that Israel was under Authority, the law itself was a covering, protecting and guarding the people until Jesus came. The law was an authority on man's head and set up boundaries for man's protection. Because there was this authority between God and man, men covered their heads when they came near to God. Remember, the priest had a, had a turban with an engraved gold plate on the front that read holiness to the Lord. And he wore this whenever he presented himself before the Lord. He had, to, he had to come into God's presence with his head covered. Uh, there was one famous story in 2 Chronicles where King Uzziah comes, he, he boldly insinuates himself into the most holy place. He goes in there, but he doesn't have the priestly garments. He doesn't have the priestly helmet. He doesn't have the helmet of salvation. He doesn't have the, uh, he doesn't have the turban with holiness to the Lord, and God zaps him on the head with leprosy. And it's, it's not an accident that it was on his head because his head was uncovered. On his forehead, um, he, got, he was struck with leprosy. So um, all, we have all these veils and all these coverings and all these protections in the old covenant, but now there's a shift and now there's a change with Jesus. The veil in the temple is torn. The holy of holies has been opened. There isn't a barrier anymore between God and man. There's no human mediator or barrier. The partition of the law has been removed. And so for man, the head covering goes. That's why Paul said earlier that for a man to wear a head covering is to shame his head, Christ. Uh, for a man to continue veiling his head while exercising spiritual gifts, or even in worship, for a man to continue veiling his head is to not to deny that Jesus removed the barriers between God and man. Now, all of this is true as well for women on a number of levels. Women too have access to the Father through the Son. There's no covering of the law on women either, but there is an additional dimension in her life that she still does have the authority and protection and the covering on her head of her husband or her father. And so she was to continue to pray or prophesy, to exercise spiritual gifts veiled or under uh, this head covering to demonstrate that she's speaking under authority and with the protection of her head. If she takes the symbol of authority off of her head, then she's explicitly denying that she is under authority. There's this interesting little phrase here at the end of verse 10, that she does this. <laughs> For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That's one of those little weird things. What? what whoa, 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 wait. What have, you, let's stop. What are you talking about? Because of the angels. Now, this could mean that God's spiritual messengers take note of this, and, and the, the angels learn submission and obedience from her example. But if you think just a little bit more about this... Uh, I don't think he's talking about winged angels. Remember the word angel in Greek means messenger. And when the letters go out to the seven churches at the beginning of Revelation, they're all addressed to the angel of the church. And we all understand that to mean the messenger of the church. Who is it talking about? Well, it's talking about the pastor of the church. So it makes a lot of sense if Paul simply means messengers here or, or the pastors. Um, if, if he's saying women keep your head covered when you exercise your spiritual gifts, because God has established pastors over the churches, and you need to demonstrate and recognize the authorities that God has put in the churches, and this is just one way you do that. This is a way of keeping order in the church. You are not a, a, a wild, rebellious, you know, hyper feminist. You understand that God has put into His creation and into His church layers of authority and protection. Um, and, and that's why. Uh, it, that's, that's why he says because of the angels. Now, now, it could mean because of the angels. It could very well mean because of the winged messengers that God has. But, but it, might, it might just mean pastors, and, and think about that dimension as well. Uh, verse 11. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as the woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Here's just a little bit more about the interdependence of man and woman. Woman was created from the side of man, but every man since then has come from a woman. So man and woman can't be separated. He is her head. She is his glory. Woman shines forth from man, and then sons and daughters come forth from her and shine forth from her, and the children are the glory of their mothers. All things come from God, and so we are all his glory. Verse 13. Judge among yourselves, is is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? In other words, if she's going to reject the covering that symbolizes her God ordained head and protection, if she's going to reject that, is it proper for her to exercise spiritual gifts? If she rejects the covering, then she's praying in a state of rebellion, and that's not fitting. Uh, Certainly, an immediate application for all of us is that. Nobody, none of us should think that our prayers are pleasing to God if we are in a state of rebellion. We can't reject authorities, be they husbands, pastors, parents, elders, and think that we'll still be heard by God and get whatever we ask. If we're rejecting authority, there's no promise of, of God's provision or that he's pleased with our prayers. Verse 14, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? for, for man's own hair to be his glory is to reject having a woman as his glory. It's, it's self glorification. So masculine head hair is short head hair. Now, somebody always raises the question, and especially, um, in the circles I grew up in, especially in the eighties and nineties where, uh, guys, you know, wanted to have right, you know, mall hair, right? They wanted to look like, uh, you know, these hair bands, right? A guy would protest and say, well, well, how long is long? What do you mean if a man has long hair? How long is long? Well, if I ask you, do you have long hair, and your answer to that question is yes, then you have long hair. I, I don't, it's, it, if I say, is your hair short? Well, yeah, then, then, then it's short. I, I think we all know what relatively long and what relatively short is. There's not a perfect spiritual le- uh, length of hair. Paul doesn't say, you know, off the collar and off the ears. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say high and tight. So I'm not going to say more than what he says. Acceptable hair lengths have varied over the centuries, and it's possible to have very short hair and also be in complete rebellion against God. So, uh, but like clothing, hair length is a biblical mark of sexual distinction. So I I shouldn't have to wait for you to turn around whether I can call you ma'am or sir. You know, I I should know by seeing your head. Um, So verse 15, if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her for her hair is given to her for a covering. Just as a man with long hair is demonstrating that he doesn't need a woman, a woman without a covering is saying she doesn't need a man. But, but God has given her a natural covering, which is her hair. It is a symbol, both of her role and, and it's her glory. If she shaves her head or uncovers her head, she's essentially saying, I'm independent. Uh, verse 16, but if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Now he returns to what he said at the very beginning about the tradition of the churches. He says, if you want to argue another viewpoint, I just need to let you know that the apostles and the other churches don't have any other customs. We don't have anything else. We all agree that this is right. So any argument you bring up is out of place and out of order. Now, what are we to think about all this? How do we interpret this? How do we obey this? Is there any instruction for us? I think the big question that we'll all come away asking is, do women have to wear hats to worship or, you know, do a little... I don't know. What do you call those things? The little tea things, those little doily things. Do you, do you have to put one of those in your hair? And my answer is no, because the context of Paul's instruction is in exercising spiritual gifts and praying in tongues and prophesying. So where women were exercising spiritual, these temporary spiritual gifts in the spirit, they were, they were bringing attention to themselves and still needed to remind everybody that they were acting under the headship of their husbands or their fathers or their elders. Paul didn't say, make sure you wear a head covering when uh, someone else is leading you in prayer, when the Bible's being read, or when there's preaching, or, or at the Lord's Supper. And in fact, none of those were even, n- nobody would even think of doing that, because everybody wore them all the time, and so you wouldn't take it off for this or that. It seems that in this capacity, in these contexts, these women were displaying spiritual gifts somewhere in their communities and in their families, and they were deliberately taking them off in order to prove a point uh, that Paul didn't think was very helpful to prove. So, so outside of this context and the exercise of spiritual gifts, I don't believe that we need to be concerned with what women wear on their head other than their hair. And, and even if you tried to obey this, I don't think a hat would do. I think what Paul has in mind is a shawl or a veil. So here's all I can say with confidence, ladies. If any of you plan on prophesying, put something on your head. I think that's, I think that's what's required. But there's more instruction here. And, and we can't miss this. The broader creation ordinance that Paul points to is, is evident in the fact that women are given a natural covering, a natural veil for their head. And women have relatively longer and more glorious hair than men. And this is good and right and orderly. And what this means is that the differences between men and women don't disappear in the church. And they don't disappear in worship. We gather to worship and serve. We gather in Christian communities to serve and worship and live as men and women. We don't become asexual in worship. We don't worship without each other. It would be improper to divide into a monastery over here and a and a convent, you know, a hundred miles over here, and have our private Christian experience without the other sex. The church needs both men and women exercising their gifts, their identities, their roles as men and women, not to flatten them out, not to suppress them, but to, but to delight in them and to, and to be men and to be women in the church and as, uh, as a body. And so that leads me to the third point and to make sure we don't miss this foundational teaching, which is the interdependence of man and woman. Man is the head of his wife, he is also dependent upon his wife. Woman is the glory of her husband. She is also dependent upon her husband. And in our in our fallenness, we're always rebelling against God's order in both directions. So some men turn headship into tyranny. Others turn dependence into abdication. And, and sometimes we, we bounce between the two. It's like we have two gears, either um, you know, uh, oppression, you know, uh, and, and if we don't get what we want out of the oppression, we retreat and withdraw. We, we either boss our wives, believe ourselves to be superior to them. We use our presence, our strength to bully them into submission, or we become passive and aloof. We blame everybody else for our problems and, and check out. And women suffer either way. Wives suffer either way in both directions, both by passivity and both by uh, bullying. Now, women also rebel against their glory and their dependence. They, they, uh, women are tempted to despise true, mature, um, re- uh, responsible female glory, and instead they trade it for this uh, perpetual immaturity. They, they want to stay 16 all their lives. They want to think and act and look 16 all their lives, rejecting the, the glory of mature femininity. They misuse that femininity, that 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 false femininity, to manipulate men with their mannerisms and their moods and and their tears, or or they they rebel against their dependence on man. They don't want to be dependent. They're strong and independent. They don't, you know, I don't need no man. They they buy into the lie that they must be like men to be successful or worthy, and and they buy into the lie that women who find their fulfillment in their marriages and their children must be weak or must be ignorant. You see, we we tend to fall and fail in both ways, and we find ways as men and women to foul things up in both directions. Well, what's the solution? What's the remedy? Paul gives this instruction because the church is the place where all of this is, is, is going to run the way it's supposed to. As we said in our, um, our men's study Sunday night, the, the church is a mirror that reflects heaven to the world. It's like an angled mirror, and we're reflecting heaven to the world. And so if the mirror is dirty or broken, it's not going to be effective. The world goes wherever the church leads it. So there must be a complete overhaul of the way that men view women and treat women and flowing out of that, transforming the way that men uh, are are treated by women, the the way that women treat men. So if, if men, if you really are the head, if you really are the source, if you are the fountain, then if anything changes, it starts with them. If you want submission in your house, model it. If you want kindness and respect in your house, model it. Show us what that looks like. You want hard work, you want industry, you want people taking responsibility in your house, get up. And get started. You set the tone. You set the pace. See, this is what's doing, this is doing what Jesus does. His bride is his glory. He leads by dying for her. He wins her. He adorns her. He contributes to her loveliness. And what does she do? Well, she receives him. She takes what he brings to her and she makes it better. This is is the harmony of the sexes. This is an answer to all the ways that the world is confused and in pain and struggling. My my friend Rich Lusk wrote this. I'm going to wrap up with this. Rich Lusk says, when we no longer have shelters for battered women, we'll probably not have any more feminists. And when all, the, when all the better women's shelters are closed, we won't have any more feminists. There will be no more need. Think about that. Why do we need shelters for women who are abused by men? What does that say about the men in our society? Men are supposed to protect women, but when women need protection from men, things have gone haywire. You see, The church has to be that reflection, that starting point, that place where women are, are not mistreated by men, either by bullying or by neglect otherwise we're just like the world. Uh, but but the church is the place and our marriages are the place where men and women participate in this delicate, complex dance, head and body, love and submission, glory to glory. And that that is at the core of what Paul is teaching here, this interdependence, that has all kinds of cultural manifestations. In their context, it was a piece of, of, of fabric that went around a woman's head. In our context, there are so many other subtle and delicate and complex ways that we uh, uh, can uh, obey and submit to the Lord Jesus as man and woman, interdependent, loving and serving each other. So much more to say, but I'm out of time, so we'll pick this up next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would continue to guide us into truth. Father, as we reflect on your word by your Holy Spirit, continue to make application in our lives. Father, strengthen us, strengthen our marriages, strengthen us in our identities as man and woman, uh, reflecting together your image to the world. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.